Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Continue this morning our systematic study through this epistle. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We'll read verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter, chapter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would, as our brother has already prayed, hear the voice of Christ. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been studying this letter, we have been instructed on how we as Christians are to live in this world filled with suffering. We have pointed out that suffering... Trials and tribulations, difficulties, hard times, these are common to all of humanity in this fallen world. But Peter, as he has spoken about suffering in general in some places, has also spoken about suffering which is specific to Christians. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Suffering in persecution. But there seems to be, as we come to this section of chapter 4, a change in the way Peter speaks to his readers concerning suffering. Some have supposed that Peter is, as he writes, trying to ease his readers into the idea of suffering. In chapter 1, he says things like, if you are weighed down with trial. In chapter 2, if a man for the sake of conscience before God suffers wrongly. In chapter 3, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, better to suffer for well-doing than for doing evil. But now we find ourselves here in the middle of chapter 4 and we find something that seems to be less if and more sure, more to the point, more certain. He says... Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. 
And some have thought that this is Peter's way of easing into the subject of suffering. Others have suggested that perhaps something has happened as Peter writes. Perhaps a new development or an increase in intensity in the persecution that they were experiencing at this time. We remember the time that this letter was written and these saints were right on the cusp of great persecution and tribulation, some of which had already been predicted by our Lord. In 70 AD, the Roman army led by Titus would come and destroy Jerusalem and would not stop the destruction until not one stone was stacked on another. This destruction was great. But the persecution did not wait for the destruction in 70 AD. Persecutions under Nero came much earlier, about 54 AD. That would mean that these terrible sufferings that these Christians would face were either just about to come to pass or perhaps they had already begun. They had already come. So maybe these things were in Peter's mind as he writes here in chapter 4. But be sure that he speaks specifically and he speaks of specific and immediate threat of persecution. The language gives us the idea. Think it not strange. The language here is like he's saying, you are thinking this is a strange thing, but stop thinking that way. You are acting surprised at persecution and suffering, but no longer be surprised. Now, I've taken the sermon title from this text, Think It Not Strange. And there are some things here to help us tune our hearts and tune our minds to the Word of God and to the will of God. I have four points that we'll take from this text and then a few sub-points along the way. I'd like to start with verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. As we look to Peter's words, think it not strange, here in verse 15 we have something that we should think is strange. We should think this is strange. For the Christian to suffer as a result of sinful behavior, like murder and thievery, that is strange. Those things are so far from the character which should be on display in the life of a believer, it should be strange for us to hear that a Christian would suffer for these sinful things. Now, certainly God saves sinners who have committed all sorts of heinous acts. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to pause there. Because in that list, some of you are like, oh, that's where it is. People are always like, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following. And we have this list of these sinful behaviors that had been committed by these people. Verse 11, we continue, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Such were some of you. 
no longer, but you were. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So such were some of you, but no longer should you be acting that way. For a Christian to continue in these sinful behaviors would be strange. So there's some things to think it not strange, but this is something we should say. This is strange. Christians, we have sung just as I am for so long, knowing that God saves us as we are where we are. But we better not think that God's saving grace affects no change in the person who receives that grace. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, but we are saved in order that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. We are saved in order that we will be walking in the good works which God has ordained for us. So when we suffer for evil doing, that's strange. As we consider this strange, sinful behavior, it always interests me to see lists in the Bible. I know you've heard me say that before. None of you should suffer in these ways, he says. None of you should suffer in this. And then we have this very short list. Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler, or busybody. Isn't it interesting? It, it's interesting how we think of sin. We think of something like being a meddler or being a busybody. Uh, the word gives us the idea of being an overseer in someone else's affairs. Now, I know everybody just had a picture of someone come to your mind. Stop that. Think about yourself. But this busybody, we, we think of this, and we might think this as a light thing. We might not even classify this in a category of sin, but here it is listed with murderer and thief, evildoer, other types of sinful behavior, and busybodies. Don't get me wrong. From my perspective, if you were to sin against me, I would much prefer that you butted your nose in where it did not belong than to murder me or even to steal from me. It does make a difference to us and in our perspective. It does, it does matter. There's a difference in how sin affects us and how it affects those around us. But when we think of sin, when we think of our sin compared to the holiness of God, well, that's, that's a different perspective. And now we see how this sin that we might think of lightly comes in a list with murderer and thief. This is a lesson for us in adjusting our thinking to the mind of God. And we also have this lesson in this text as to how we view suffering. We, we need to tune our minds when we think about suffering to think about it in the way that God views suffering. The first step in that is, is this mind alteration where we think it strange for a Christian to suffer as the consequence of evil, sinful behavior. So first, we think that is strange. Secondly, we see what is not to be thought of as strange. We see what we are to think not strange. Verse 12, 
It is not strange that the disciple of Christ should suffer fiery trials. We should not be surprised at trials and suffering. And we remember that Jesus promised as much. John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. It amazes me, people that want to memorize all the promises of Jesus, they usually leave that one out. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus promised us this. This world is filled with trouble, but especially the type of trouble, the type of suffering that we're speaking of is for those who follow Christ. The Bible tells us clearly the world hated him and the world will hate us too. Well, the world will hate us to more or less to the extent that we look like, walk like, talk like, act like Jesus. So we will have trouble. It is to be expected. Think it not strange. In that verse where Jesus promises us in this world, you will have trouble. He also gives us a reason to find peace in him. He says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So suffering and trials are not an indication that something is off track. Christians, suffering and trials are rather an indication that everything is right on schedule. So we don't want to think like this, but this is how we must think. Christians are suffering. Check. Christians are expecting to suffer. And if we're not expecting to suffer, we need to adjust our thinking. We need to start expecting suffering. I, I, I didn't put it in my notes, but I think that's another thing that we could think strange. We could think it's strange that a Christian lives without any suffering. That would be strange. Now, there are certainly times, aren't we glad for the mercy of God that we are not suffering 100% of the time? What, what a blessing it is that we have a reprieve, that we have a break. But it's, it's to be expected that we would suffer. And what kind of suffering are we to expect? What kind of trial? The verse says fiery trials. And this indicates a significant pain associated with suffering, a discomfort. Now we Christians who live in the West, we really know nothing of real persecution. We, we do know what it is to be marginalized by the world. We may be laughed at, we may be called names and ridiculed, but, but real persecution is bloody. And it's important that we make the distinction because there are Christians in this world today who are persecuted. More Christians and persecution more severe than at any other time in history. So when we are not invited to that office Christmas party because we're not going to get drunk like everybody else. When we're ridiculed in front of others because of our Christian beliefs. Let's say that is being marginalized, but not persecuted. But we also must keep in mind 
fellow Americans, fellow Texans, that things can change very quickly. The political landscape of our country today is so different from when I was a young man that I never would have believed. I never would have believed it. Things can change, and things can change quickly. And we may still see real persecution of Christians in this country that we love so much. Just like in the life of Peter and, and in the lifetime of Peter's original audience, changes came and changes came for the worse. And they were suffering through them. And brothers and sisters, we may see fiery trials in our lifetime. So we're not to be surprised by suffering. Verse 13 gives us more insight why we should not be surprised. Disciples of Christ should not be surprised. In fact, we should rejoice because we share in His suffering. We share in the suffering of Christ. Verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. All things that come to pass, including suffering, are to the glory of God. All things that happen are to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And when we suffer, we share in His suffering. Romans 8 says we share in His suffering that we might share in His glory. We share in His suffering that we might share in His glory. It comes to mind, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We look for that day when we share in His glory, and now we share in His suffering. Listen to Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of, no, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dumb that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformed unto His death that we may share in His suffering, that we may know Him in His suffering. We share in Christ's sufferings when we suffer for His name's sake. There is certainly no, there's no happy, happy, joy, joy in the midst of suffering, right? But while there is no joy in the suffering for suffering's sake, in the midst of suffering for Christ, we can rejoice. We should rejoice. We must rejoice because we share in Christ. Now, Christians, we certainly don't go looking for suffering. We don't go signing up for suffering as though suffering itself will somehow be good for us. I would say let's avoid suffering where we can. Certainly avoid, as we're instructed here, avoid suffering for doing evil, but avoid suffering wherever we can avoid it. But when we are up against unavoidable suffering for the cause of Christ, know that you are sharing in the suffering of our Savior.
He suffered vicariously, that is, on our behalf. He suffered salvifically, that is, for our salvation. He suffered transactionally, that is, paying our sin debt on Calvary's cross. And our suffering is none of these things. But in our suffering, we are communing with Christ. We are sharing in His suffering. So, first, think of it strange for a Christian to suffer for evil doing. Secondly, think it not strange that the disciples of Christ should suffer fiery trials. Now, thirdly, the Christian attitude towards suffering must be tuned to the mind of Christ. Verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf or for the sake of the suffering. Do not be ashamed. As Christians, and true Christianity has become more and more marginalized, more and more unaccepted in our societies, it's easy to find Christians who are ashamed. We may not have to look outside this very room. Those who let the ridicule, the name-calling, those, those comments and dark eyes of the world fall on them and then they divert their gaze. Some of us would like to hide in shame when it is revealed that we believe in something like a six-day creation. Do you really believe in the parting of the Red Sea and the virgin birth? Are you kidding me? You believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Some of us would rather those things were not talked about. Some of us would rather that it was not revealed that we do believe this. We'd prefer if people didn't know that we think a man's first priority is as spiritual leader of his home. We prefer it if people didn't know that we think a woman's greatest fulfillment will be found in submission to her husband. We, we, we would like to hide the fact that we discipline our children biblically with the use of the rod. Those things are condemned as beliefs of the unlearned. They are ridiculed as foolish. And they are considered by the religion of the world to be great sins. Christians, we must not be ashamed. I mean, we know the verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do we show something different when we are faced with opposition? Christians should not feel ashamed. This verse is stated as a command. Let the one who suffers as a Christian not be ashamed. So Christians, don't be ashamed of our faith. Don't be ashamed as we suffer for the faith. It says do not be ashamed, but rather glorify God. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. And it's not just glorifying God, but glorifying God in the suffering. 
glorifying God in the very thing that we are suffering. God is glorified as we suffer well for his name's sake. And again, we're reminded as we say glorify God, that in glorifying God, we add nothing to him. God's glory is unchanged. But in glorifying God, what we are doing is we are acknowledging and ascribing to him the glory that is already his, that which is already due unto his name. So as we suffer for Christ's sake, which is normal and to be expected, and we're not surprised in the life of a Christian, and we are not ashamed, but we glorify God in our suffering. And then we come to verses 17 and 18. As, as we suffer, disciples of Christ should prepare to meet the Lord. Suffering should give us a heavenly perspective. Suffering should cause us to look to the age to come. Verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us first, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? We're reminded here once again of coming judgment. It was only a few verses earlier that Peter mentioned coming judgment. Here we have it again. There's coming judgment. I'm reminded that some people came to Jesus and reported some terrible things that had happened, some awful uh, tragedies, we would call them, some terrible deaths which had occurred. In one case, a tower had fallen on some people. We would say just innocent people just there, and the tower fell on them and killed them. And in another case, uh, Pilate had killed some Galileans who had come to offer sacrifices, and Pilate had killed them. And they bring this to Jesus. They're suffering in this world. But rather than bemoan the suffering in the world, Jesus used the opportunity to call those people to repentance. He said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You had better be ready for judgment day. And here Peter is calling us to the same attention to the day of judgment. You are suffering, but know that judgment is coming. Now, let's consider for a moment what it means. It says here that judgment must begin at the house of God. Well, the house of God could mean the temple in Jerusalem. And, and if it's the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps the judgment spoken of here, judgment beginning at the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, could be that destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And, and, and those things certainly are true. Judgment did come upon Israel and upon Jerusalem and in the temple there uh, after they had rejected Christ. Judgment did come there. But the house of God here could be, and I believe is referring to, the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. Those redeemed by Christ's life and death and resurrection. But if if... The house of God refers to the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Then we have to understand judgment and we have to understand that judgment then cannot mean punishment for sin. If this judgment begins at the house of God is speaking of 
those who are saved, then judgment cannot mean punishment for sin. Why? Because Jesus paid for the sins of all who would believe on him. He endured the punishment on our behalf. He endured the punishment for our sin. Therefore, the terrors of the law and the fear of God's wrath against sin can no longer have anything to do with the Christian. That kind of judgment, that specific judgment against sin was meted out on Christ on Calvary's cross. And that judgment is finished. That's what Jesus declared when he was crucified. It is finished. So if this speaks of the church as the house of God, then that judgment must refer to God's fatherly chastisement. Different from God's judgment of sin in the world, we read these verses each week as we come to the Lord's table and it helps us to see these two types of judgment. We read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, and we'll read it again here in a little bit. Uh, it says that when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation. Judgment must begin at the house of God. We also need to understand verse 18. It says here that the righteous are scarcely saved. Scarcely saved. Or, or maybe your Bible says something like saved with difficulty. Scarcely saved. Now this does not mean that we are slightly saved. Have you ever heard someone who is a little pregnant? No, that's not. You either are or you're not. Well, here's the deal, Christian. You're either saved or you're not. You're not slightly or, or partially saved. The salvation of God through Jesus Christ is full and complete. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, He declared it is finished. And, and that is the state of salvation for all who are in Him. Full, final, finished. It's not a partial salvation. So scarcely saved does not mean that. Scarcely saved also does not mean that there's some question or some doubt about the salvation of these saints. Somehow their salvation is in question. They're scarcely saved. No. They are scarcely saved, but they are certainly saved. We are God's chosen. We are chosen and elect unto salvation by the Father. Christ the Son has procured our salvation. And the Holy Spirit has made application of that salvation to us. As John Gill says, we are being justified. We, we being justified or made righteous persons, nothing is more certain than that we shall be glorified. Our salvation is not in question. Scarcely saved is not partial. Scarcely saved is not doubtful. The scarcely saved does speak to difficulties in salvation. Now, sometimes we think of salvation as easy. Right? It's easy. Well, well salvation, let's think of it differently. It's not easy. You think of the problem of man's sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. 
what greater problem is there? There is no greater problem. There is nothing with more difficulty. Think then of the strictness of divine justice. Do you see that salvation has difficulty? Think of the rigorous demands of God's law. Think of the unique sacrifice which would be required to save a sinner. There's only one sacrifice, and that one must be the Son of God and the Son of Man. There's only one way of salvation, by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Any, any adjustment to the plan of salvation destroys salvation altogether. Any addition to salvation is an adulteration. Any subtraction from salvation removes its power to save. Salvation is with great difficulty. Christians, we were very specifically, now we are particular Baptists, right? But we are very specifically saved. Hear what Peter calls scarcely saved. And if we are scarcely saved, what about the sinner? Where does that put the sinner? Sinner. Lost friend, how will you escape the judgment of God if you neglect the great salvation that he has offered through Jesus Christ? God's gospel, the good news of salvation to sinners, is specific and full of difficulty. And if you were to try to accomplish this salvation on your own, you would surely fail. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has faced all the difficulties of salvation. He has satisfied the demands of divine justice. Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of the law of God. There is no more work to be done. That's why we think of salvation as easy, because the work is completed. He did it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't free. We say salvation is free. No, it's been paid for. He has accomplished this. The only thing left now is for us to believe in Jesus, claiming his blood as cleansing for our sin, claiming his life as righteousness, a righteousness for our own. Christian, as you face fiery trials, don't be ashamed. Rather glorify God in that suffering and keep this eternal perspective. Judgment is coming be ready. And then lastly, in verse 19, wherefore let him, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Disciples of Christ should entrust themselves to our faithful God. Now, now, some of you already know this. You've already found this truth out. And if you haven't, let me help you. You can't keep yourself. You can't save yourself. 
You are not sovereign over all things. I wonder if you can control anything. But God is sovereign over all. God is all powerful. And God is a good and faithful creator. What, what can we call good besides God? We sing, whate'er my God ordains is right. That's true. Whate'er my God ordains is right, but it is also for his glory and for our good. It's not just that it's right, Christians. It's that it's for our good. We, if we were smart enough, we would desire what God commands. If we were smart enough, we would want for ourselves what God has for us. Including, including the suffering that he has that we should walk through. Don't let yourself forget that. Don't, don't fight against God as though he is trying to harm you. Keep committing your soul to him. We read earlier in the Psalms, my time is in your hands. My life is in your hands. Everything that I have, it is in your hands. And we can rest and be comforted and be at peace. Because he is, he is our creator. But he is a good and faithful creator. God, we pray that you'd apply these things to our hearts. God, we pray that you'd even prepare us now for the suffering that you would have us to face. God, as we walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ in, the, in a body, a local body of believers, we pray that you would help us to bear one another's burdens. That we would pray for one another. God, for those sufferings, difficulties, fiery trials that we cannot even imagine, give us grace. Help us to glorify you. Give us a heavenly perspective. And help us as we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.